eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease and a whole lot of love, you transform 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. LED headlights, spoilers, whatever you need. eBay Motors has it at affordable prices. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride every time. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Civics 101 is supported in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Civics. Civics. Civics 101. Ten years ago today, U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement agents raided a textile plant in New Bedford, Massachusetts. Nick, how much do you know about ICE? They detained hundreds of workers. My knowledge of ICE is in the wake of the attacks of September 11th. And I felt like immigration uh, laws and our treatment of the undocumented in the U.S. changed drastically. Yeah. But I don't know what their practices are, and I don't know what their legal boundaries are. Right. I feel like I often hear about controversy around ICE. Maria Louise and her family were separated back in 2005. I don't know what they're allowed to do, what they're not allowed to do, why that institution was set up exactly as it is. And Jimmy Gutierrez, you know him, he's a producer on our show. Uh, He reached out to this reporter at Vox, Dara Lind. Now, Dara has actually been reporting on immigration for, I think, most of her career. So she's really the person to get in touch with if you want to understand what ICE is, why it's doing what it's doing, and what it is doing in this country. So ICE as an agency dates back to about 2003. It was created as part of the Department of Homeland Security after 9-11. But the functions that ICE does were, before 9-11, done by the Immigration and Naturalization Service. That was under the Department of Justice, and it was the one immigration agency that the government really had. So it was responsible for you know, getting legal immigrants into the country. It was responsible for Border Patrol. And it also was responsible for, in theory, apprehending and deporting people who were either in the US without papers or who had violated the terms of their visas. Uh, most of the people who actually got deported at that point were people who had, you know, been legal immigrants who had committed crimes. So they would get, you know, picked up from prisons if INS agents knew they were there in some cases. It wasn't a constant thing, but like there were, you know, maybe several thousand deportations a year. And so why specifically was ICE created with this mission in mind? So when the Department of Homeland Security was created, there were it was both a response to 9-11 and kind of a thing that people had been thinking about for a while. So in the second category of things, there because you only had the one immigration agency and it had all of these different duties, sometimes, you know, prioritizing one thing could lead to letting another fall off. Like it's really very difficult to simultaneously make it 
as easy as possible for people who have legal status to like come into the U.S. and to you know process those applications when you're the exact same people who are stopping people at the border if their papers are not in order. So there was an interest in kind of separating that out and having three single function agencies instead of one multifunction agency so that they could better focus on doing their job. The other part of this, though, is that this was a reaction to 9-11. And one of the big policy problems that had led to the 9-11 attacks was that several of the 9-11 hijackers were here on visas but had overstayed or were violating the terms of their visas. And in theory, a more aggressive immigration enforcement system might have caught those violations. When did immigration policy and detainment really get its teeth in the United States? So under President Clinton, in 1996, a bunch of laws got passed that were, you know, kind of moved the needle to the right in policy domestically generally. Um, you know, one of those was the Welfare Reform Act. One of those was the AEDPA, dealing with the death penalty. But there, the one that's kind of most relevant for immigration stuff was called the Illegal Immigration Reform and Immigrant Responsibility Act, IRA-IRA. And it was a really broad expansion of immigration enforcement that kind of doesn't get credited a lot today, um, but that at the time was a very big, you know, we're going to be tough on these immigrants move from the Clinton administration and the Democratic Party to make it clear that they were tough on crime and, you know, weren't and tough on the rule of law. The IRA IRA Act built a lot of the kind of legal infrastructure that gets used today for deportation. In particular, it built in, in a couple of places, the ability for local law enforcement departments to work with the federal government on immigration enforcement. The thing is that the Clinton administration didn't actually use those tools. Um, the, the director of INS at the time got a bunch of applications from local law enforcement departments that like wanted to get deputized. But uh, what she told me was that she required every community that wanted to start doing that to hold a community meeting and to see whether it really made sense, you know, to hear from members of the community and see whether it was really the best idea for their police officers to start thinking of themselves as immigration deputies. And she said that no one really got past that point. So it was kind of building the skeleton when DHS and ICE got created in 2003, Congress started giving them the funding that actually allowed them to do that. So they started putting the muscle on that skeleton. So this actual process of deporting somebody, it starts with, you know, finding them and detaining them, right? So who makes the decision of who to go after, especially when you don't necessarily prioritize someone who's committed a crime? This is an extremely good question. And because ICE is a law enforcement agency that doesn't like discussing things about how they make, quote unquote, law enforcement decisions, you don't get a really clear answer about what kinds of processes they have. We do know that there, that ICE has access to a lot of law enforcement and homeland security databases kind of generally. Um, we don't know how often it uses that access. That's a very big question for, you know, people who are concerned about government surveillance as well as immigrant rights. But the question isn't just how they find people, but also is there ever a point where someone is identified as an unauthorized immigrant 
and the ICE agent or somebody above the ICE agent in the ICE office says, no, you shouldn't go after that person because we need to be doing other things with them, with your time. We need to be doing other things with that money. We need to be doing other things with the you know detention space that we have. So that is really what the black box is. And if you listen to the public side of this debate, it sure sounds like there's nobody telling an ICE agent, no, you can't deport that person, that it's entirely up to the individual agent. But there have been some cases where after somebody gets detained and the government is preparing to deport them, there's been a big media backlash and the government has said, okay, fine, we won't deport you just yet. We'll give you some kind of temporary stay. That's not as common as it used to be under the Obama administration. There definitely have been cases where there's been a big public push. and like Members of Congress have asked them not to deport someone and they've gone ahead and done it. But there have been some cases where they've stepped back, which does indicate that some kind of decision up the chain is getting made. And when somebody is picked up by ICE, what happens to them next? Are they sent to a detention facility? That depends. Um, a lot of this process looks a little bit like the typical process for somebody who gets arrested. Um, just like someone who gets arrested for a crime, you know, they might be put into jail or in this case detention, or they might be released you know, on bond. They might have an ankle bracelet. The Trump administration has been trying to increase detention, but there are certain circumstances under which, you know, a judge can just say, no, this person should be released. The key moment between somebody getting arrested and them getting deported is that most immigrants who are caught in the U.S. have a right to hear, appear before an immigration judge, which is a separate kind of court. It's under the Department of Justice, so it's not under ICE. But the prosecution in those cases are ICE attorneys. So ICE kind of represents the federal government saying this person is deportable and is not eligible for some other form of legal status. And it's the immigration judge's job to figure out whether or not that is the case. How have immigration courts in general been keeping up with these deportations? Because they're under the Department of Justice, ICE has gotten a ton more resources from Congress over the last 15 years. And the Department of Justice's Immigration Court office hasn't really as much. There have kind of been efforts to give it resources that are a little bit too little too late. So they're currently super overworked. There's a super long backlog. It takes about 700 days for the average case right now to make it through the court. Um, that's not as long for people who get who are being kept in detention the whole time, they really do make an effort to kind of cycle those people through, and it's harder for them to get lawyers. So there it's probably a matter of weeks in most cases. And at the end of that process, you know, either because you don't have papers and you don't have any way to get papers, you're ordered deported anyway, or you actually successfully make the case that I should get asylum. I should, you know, I my country will torture me. There's like a provision in the Geneva Convention against torture that I should be able to access that kind of thing. And you can get the judge to give you some kind of relief from deportation. That's pretty rare. So usually what happens is that people are just waiting for, you know, a matter of weeks and then they're in court for 10 minutes and then ICE picks them up and, you know, schedules a flight and puts them on the plane. And is every single one of these immigrants granted a lawyer? No. This is the other thing about immigration court not being like typical court. There is no right to representation in immigration court at all. And 
I don't know the percentage of immigrants who end up, quote unquote, representing themselves, um, but it's extremely high, especially, again, in cases where they're coming, you know, there's a courtroom in the detention center, and so they're being marched from their detention cell to the court. Uh, those cases go by very quickly, and there's very little chance that they'll even be able to talk to a lawyer. A lot of pro bono organizations do some work around immigration, but they only have so many resources, so they tend to pick the cases that they think are the easiest to win. There are some experiments going on at the local level with you know, cities giving the money for lawyers to represent everybody who comes through a detention center in immigration court. And those have been promising and successful, but under the Department of Justice, there's also a lot of pressure on immigration judges to go through cases more quickly. You'll hear from some politicians that deportation of undocumented immigrants is equated with lowered crime rates. So so are communities safer because of ICE's aggressive tactics? Um, aggressive tactics, absolutely not. As a matter of fact, even the ICE, even the current leadership of ICE will tell you that they only that they would rather go into jails and do all their arrests, that that's the safest option for them and for immigrants, um, whereas going into the community is riskier because, you know, there are other people around. But there's absolutely no evidence linking, you know, immigration to crime generally. The evidence about unauthorized immigration and crime is slightly less unambiguous, um, is kind of the, that's the most generous way I can put it. It still does, for the most part, indicate that you're not, you're, there isn't evidence that unauthorized immigrants, or at least not reliable evidence, that unauthorized immigrants are substantially more criminal in nature than anybody else. And deportation is kind of an independent question of that anyway, because, yeah, you're taking some people out of the community, but... ICE has never been at a point where it could deport even a, you know, even a noticeable fraction of the immigrant community. If you think about it, there are 11 million unauthorized immigrants in the U.S. That number basically hasn't budged since the beginning of the Great Recession. And so any, you know, even during the time when there were 400,000 people a year getting deported, that's at best kind of a, a cup in the ocean. So it's really hard to argue that going in and arresting and deporting people has an effect on crime rates unless you're trying to say that somebody would be tempted to commit a crime, but if they see that other people are getting deported, they won't do it. And even if that were the case, the Trump administration isn't targeting people who have committed crimes. They're, you know, kind of undoing that targeting. So it's it's very hard to understand the current administration's policy as an anti-crime effort. What kind of gets tied up in that, though, is that for people who care a lot about the rule of law, quote unquote, even though being in the U.S. without papers is not a criminal offense, it's a civil offense, those people still think of it as, well, you violated U.S. law by being here, so we are making U.S. law mean something by deporting you. And so by that measure, you can say that immigration enforcement protects the rule of law. But it's one of those things where protecting the rule of law and protecting people from crime are actually independent. On the flip side, though, you've got these activists going as far as calling ICE a modern Gestapo. And, you know, some immigration advocates have championed this motto, you know, abolish ICE. How do you expect this debate to move forward from here? I think that the abolish ICE conversation has 
you know, benefited from being a conversation from the party out of power, right? It's very easy to point to the most obvious manifestations of ICE and go, we need to abolish this agency. But as even Democratic politicians, even progressive Democrats like Kamala Harris, who have been asked this question, have said, ICE also does a lot of things that are not politically controversial. The, you know, when we've been talking about ICE through this whole thing, we've really just been talking about the Enforcement and Removal Operations Division, which is the most visible and is one of the most, you know, prominent. But a lot of ICE agents are under Homeland Security investigations. They do longer investigations of like human trafficking, drug trafficking, that kind of thing, and don't just go after immigrants. So you can definitely expect, at least for the near future, to see Democrats defending the existence of ICE as an agency, even if they say some of the things that ICE agents are currently doing are beyond the pale. What's going to be interesting, though, is to see where Democrats end up coming down on the question of whether people should be deported, because there isn't the low-hanging fruit that I was talking about earlier, the kind of people who are already coming into contact or who already have criminal records, there's not a ton of that. And the more of it you pick, the less of it there is. So you can't have another round of, well, we're going after hundreds of thousands of immigrants a year, but all of them have criminal records. Not that that was ever what Obama was actually doing, but he managed to get away with messaging it for a few years. Now that Trump has kind of pulled the curtain back on that, you can't really go back to, well, we're being very aggressive, but everyone we're being aggressive with deserves it. And so I'm not at all sure whether Democrats, unless they manage to you know, get both houses of Congress and the presidency and do something that would actually legalize unauthorized immigrants who have been in the U.S. for years, I don't know where the party ends up on saying, well, the law says that if you don't have papers, you can be deported. Most people who don't have papers have been here for over a decade, are integrated into their communities. I don't know how those two things get squared in a post-Trump Democratic Party, and I think that that conversation is going to be one to watch. Darlind is a senior reporter at Vox covering immigration. What do you want to know about how government agencies work? Something you've seen in the news and blown past? Send your questions about how government works to civics101 at nhpr.org or visit our website, civics101podcast.org. While you're there, sign up for extra credit. It's our weekly newsletter, and it's packed with information, quizzes, trivia, and visuals, which really just don't play well in podcasts. This episode was produced by Jimmy Gutierrez. Music in this episode is from Broke for Free. I'm Hannah McCarthy. Civics 101 is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease and a whole lot of love, you transform 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. LED headlights, spoilers, whatever you need. eBay Motors has it at affordable prices. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride every time. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. She said, get out the chat room and clean mine. Fred, stretch, feeling so fresh. The 
Glad Girl Group coming at you with a throwback jam. That was Glad Force Flex Drawstring Trash Bags featuring Pine Sol Original Scent. And that's better than all good. It's all glad. It is an understandable side effect of this job, this wonderful job that I have. But I am always, constantly, constantly searching. Searching for guests to come on the show. Searching for archival audio. Searching the desert for the blues. I got 23 tabs open right now, and that is just to figure out how to make the mouse cursor disappear when I'm watching this Bob Hoskins film. But when it comes to searching for someone to work with you on your team, the best way to search is not to search at all, but to match instead with Indeed. Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. And their matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Listeners of our show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash civics. Just head on over to Indeed.com slash civics right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Again, Indeed.com slash civics. Terms and conditions apply. You need to hire? You need Indeed. Or as Bob Hoskins would say in The Long Good Friday, Indeed. Buying a master mechanics tool set usually means high prices, higher interest rates, and who knows how many years of monthly payments. But at GearWrench, we don't believe that your tools should take years and years to pay for. So check out Mega Mod Master Sets, the master mechanics tool sets that deliver pro-quality tools, organized storage solutions, an easy-to-use lifetime warranty, and much, much more. All for thousands less than you'd expect. So don't wait. Explore the sets and check availability now. Only at GearWrench.com. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.